Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Hello, gentlemen. Cheers. What has everybody got today? today? Check this. I've got to be an official at a swim meet later, so Uh they don't like it when I've been drinking first. Yeah. You know all that? That's my game this time. You know what I saw? What was so funny? If you've ever watched the Bad News Bears, and and you watch the old the old movie with uh, is it Mathau? Walter Mathau is the lead guy. So so this is hilarious because he is the coach of the basketball team, obviously, or the baseball team, and he's coaching these kids, and he's constantly walking around with a stubby beer. He has one of those old stubby type beers and he's coaching kids and he's drinking. The parents are coming up and yelling at him. He's walking around. He's having a brew while he's coaching. I'm like, that just is just those things just don't happen anymore today. I don't know what kind of world we're living in where Who have we raised uh, to take yeah, over this world. It doesn't really doesn't. It doesn't. So um, on that note, so we're going to talk about uh, the rebalancing premium today. And just as everyone knows, uh, we're going to have wide ranging conversation. Anything that's investment related, you should get serious professional help on, uh, not from the uh, three musketeers on this particular call. And um, and I, I am really excited though to talk about this. I think this paper is um, potentially shifts the tectonic plates of how practitioners should think about the the idea of different asset classes and the idea of how one rebalances them. You know. Typically, you have this sort of old, uh, sort of old uh, format of, of thinking that um, a, a balance or rebalance is a um, you know a deviation from target. So one has some asset classes that they've allocated to. There's a deviation from the target that may deviate one's risk tolerances, and thus you know you should come back to your previous allocation and. That's certainly one very simplistic way that it's that it's often done, but it misses the point, right? There there are several sources. I'm sort of setting the table. I think there are several sources of return that practitioners can harness. Um, sort of the risk free rate, uh, the risk premiums that come from various betas, um, maybe the risk premiums that come from various factor exposures, and then potentially the alpha of manager skill that sits on top of that. But what that misses, and I think what the rebalancing paper demonstrates so wonderfully, is the thoughtful pursuit of beta, what betas, making sure those betas are differentiated, and then the disciplined nature in which you would think about rebalancing those, being aware of their volatilities and correlations, brings a whole new layer of potential excess return to the table. And it's it's absolutely not being capitalized on. And when we think about those sort of three or four dimensions of how you might garner some excess returns, the first one I mentioned, the risk-free rate is at zero, potentially in some cases less than zero. And so rather than focusing on, you know, sort of traditional betas, traditional, traditional factors, uh, and just looking at the rebalance premium or the rebalancing process as a process of simply coming back to some, I'll call it somewhat arbitrary target allocation and not always arbitrary, but, but some target allocation, 
Rather, it should be thought of a way to pursue excess returns across the entire portfolio. And I think this is where, you know, a lot of times the idea of the asset classes themselves and then and then the rebalancing are viewed separately. It's better when the process is fully integrated. And I think I'll, I'll stop talking. I'll turn it over to, to you, Adam, I and mean, you've worked. No, I think that's actually your, your last comment hits it right on the nose because I think what we tried to do with this series of papers, keep in mind that this, the, the paper on rebalancing premium was an uh, addendum or an appendix to the original paper on global risk parity, right? And I think the idea is, look, we like, why do we like just not to continue to beat the same dead horse we beat all the time, but why do we generally like risk parity? Because we don't like being vulnerable to a concentrated exposure to equities when we know that equities do well exclusively during periods of benign inflation, stronger than expected growth, and abundant liquidity. What we want is a portfolio that is resilient to other economic conditions. Obviously, the last 10 years um, has been dominated largely by conditions that have been especially favorable to U.S. equities. Right? U.S. growth equities. U.S. growth equities, 100%. Um, but we know as we look back decade by decade by decade back to 1900, and we've got we've got data series from uh, providers like Global Financial Data that go all the way back to the 1700s, and in some cases for uh, you know uh, British stocks and and uh, Dutch stocks back to the 1300s, right? So we've got very long histories. So we know that economies go go through periods of unexpected shocks, both positive and negative to growth, and unexpected shocks, both positive and negative to inflation. And that equities are only really fundamentally designed to do well in a couple of the four potential quadrants. And U.S. equities especially are only really expected to be the top performer in one of those quadrants, right? And we've been in one of those quadrants, typically, you know, sort of disinflationary growth quadrant for the past decade, which is a reason why U.S. equities have have completely dominated every other asset class, but there's no reason why we should expect that to to happen going forward over the next ten years or over the next five years or twenty years. Like right. So so the first principle is we want to diversify because we want to eliminate or minimize our vulnerabilities to any particular economic environment. Right. So that's where we get to risk parity. And and one of the big objections to risk parity there's, there's a couple. One is it typically uh, leans towards a, a higher fixed income allocation on average as a proportion of the portfolio than you get from, say, a 60-40 portfolio, right? Where obviously only 40% of the portfolio is in, is in bonds and 60% are in equities. Well, now we're saying, well, we, we want to have closer to sort of 70% of the portfolio, 65 to 70% of the portfolio in fixed income. And then the balance is going to be allocated to a mixture of equities, which everybody loves, and commodities, which can be scary, right? Like, is there a risk premium in commodities? Why? Um, how, how large is it? Um, and so there's this larger than expected allocation to fixed income and this allocation to commodities that typically ring sensitivities for investors, right? So one of the great things about this appendix on the rebalancing premium is it showcases one of the benefits of having access to all these commodities, keep in mind there's there's like 
35 different commodity markets. They're, they span across grains and softs and metals and energies. And um, you, so they're, they're going in different directions for different reasons at different times. It creates a lot of independent sources of return. And when you've got a lot of independent sources of return, that is an opportunity to maximize this thing called the rebalancing premium, right? Yeah. And so and that's, that's where we sort of come full circle. We yeah, want to have all right. these different bets in the portfolio. Yeah. Some of them are scary, especially sort of commodities and maybe higher concentration of bonds. But if you can get over that, you've got this opportunity for this, you know, two or three percent, maybe even higher rebalancing premium that comes from this extra diversification. And you get this three percent premium without any expectation of of higher risk. And I, I want to differentiate this concept of diversification for it not to mean line items in your portfolio, but rather true idiosyncratic sources of risk, right? I think, uh, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half ago, we published a piece just going through how much diversification there are in different universes of investable assets. And we started with the S&P 500, then the S&P sectors, uh, just traditional kind of you know, gold equities, just some of the asset classes you can glean from exchange traded funds. And then you got the futures and you got their, you, you got a lot. So what do we see when we threw all of the equities in the U S market, the amount of idiosyncratic bets, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it was something like 1.2, 1.4. Right. And then, and then it went up from, from that to sectors to, to, to around two, two independent bets. So even though you may have, 5,000 stocks, because the idiosyncratic risk is all based on growth expectations for equities, you're not going to get that diversification benefit. What needs to happen, what needs to exist is not a, a, a thousands and thousands of line items in your portfolio, but rather enough line items in your portfolio with, with completely unique sources of risk that you're able to capture divergent returns at different times because of the underlying realities of those asset classes that you invest in. Gold being different than tips, being different than softs, being different than energy and equities and so on. Right. So I just want to lay that out to make you know, sure. I'm going to share my screen because I actually have that, that image up here. Um, so I'm just going to share it. Let's see. And while you're looking can... for that, I think it's, um, it truly is the essence of, I think, um, good investing is to think about how you might source these different areas of return and and being um, pursuing these uh, different. And again, it's 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 the difference that makes all the difference, I suppose. Um, from yeah, the apparently of I'm not allowed to share my screen, so maybe I'll flip it to you guys and you can. Oh, I think maybe Ani can Ani can help with that potentially, maybe, but but yeah. as you were commenting too on on the the overexposure supposed overexposure to bonds, well that's the that's the cash allocation, the risk allocation again is digging a little bit deeper, scratching the surface. Okay, well yeah, bonds have volatility of six. Um, they're just they're they're going to require more capital exposure in order to provide that type of risk to the portfolio, which is very different than the risk that would derive from commodity markets or from precious metals markets or from emerging markets or, you know, developed markets. And, and so it, it is, you know, the, the objection that it's a bond portfolio is false. 
and um, it has an allocation that is similar to the allocations of risk that are otherwise associated with the portfolio. And so we hear that, you know, as we talked about, there's a few sources of return, probably four. The risk-free rate is one. We don't have that risk-free rate anymore uh, in bonds. And and so, you know, what what are the potential for returns there? That is also built into all the other asset classes that are discounted cash flow assets, though. I think that's another miss in people's sort of overconfidence driven by the recency bias of the the sort of the, the recent performance of those, you know, sort of US growth stocks. Anyway. Over to you on the graph. No, but I, I want to make sure that's not lost, right? Because I think everybody focuses on the fact that bonds have ultra low rates, but they're not accounting for the fact that those ultra low rates are built into the expected returns for all other markets because Correct. all of them are discounted at the same rate. And Precisely. Uh, so if the expected returns on bonds are low, the expected returns on all other markets are also low. And if that's not true, then you're expressing the view that markets are not efficient. And if markets are not efficient, what are you doing in a passive cap-weighted stock portfolio in the first place, right? right? So pick your goddamn poison. Either you think markets are efficient, in which case you believe that all markets everywhere have low expected returns because many global markets, many global benchmark bond markets are trading at negative yields and benchmark treasuries are trading at 1% um, and, and everything else is discounted off that. And therefore, it also has low yields. Or you believe that markets are not efficient, in which case you need to make take other steps to modify your portfolio to express the actual optimal portfolio given your new views, right? So mm-hmm. just just to reinforce that point. Um, and, and again, to sort of close, close a loop on this, this is a, a chart that we included in one of our presentations. But um, just going through the opportunity for diversification, again, uh, not the number of stocks or sectors or, or line items in the portfolio, but the, the effective number of uncorrelated um, sources of risk in the portfolio. So, you know, to the far left, if you put 10, industry, uh, 10 industries in your portfolio, because they're so highly correlated, you only get about uh, 1.6 effective sources of, of risk. You've got 10 line items, but only 1.6 uncorrelated um, sources of risk, right? Move a little further along if you want to go to sub-industries. So the 49 industries, and this is just from, I downloaded from Crisp, but 49 industries, the returns give you three effective bets from 49 industries, right? Because again, most of them are so highly correlated. Um, all the stocks in the S&P 500 during a a period when stocks are highly correlated, like for example, over the year through March 2009, you'll remember that was a global financial crisis. Stocks tend to become more correlated during crises. So there were fewer bets than normal. So across all 500 stocks over the the year of returns coming into March 2009, there were only four and a half effective uncorrelated bets. Now, during a, a calmer period, I believe I, I made this chart in 2017. Um, in 2017, you got about 10 effective bets over the, the previous year, uh, over all 500 stocks. But still, 500 stocks, only 10 effective bets. And if you go to 40 futures markets, you get up to 13 effective bets on average, right? So just the power of but- adding all the markets in futures to this universe and, and what that means to diversification. I want to point out something as well here that there's there's a blue bar and a yellow bar, right? So the the way the traditional way of thinking about things is the blue. It's okay. You got ten industries. If I equal weight them, how many effective bets do I have? Ten industries equal weight is one point four. 
But then there's a thoughtful process by which you actually want to maximize the impact of diversification where each individual bet has a maximum opportunity to express their diversification benefits, right? So if we move over to the S&P 500 and we do an equal weight S&P 500 portfolio, we see that the, the, there's 2.3 bets in the blue. But if you weight them more thoughtfully in order to, to give you know different weights and account for correlations and volatilities, you can create as much, you can allow, you can weight certain securities that have higher non-correlation characteristics, you can weight them in such a way where you can express four and a half unique bets. So it's not just about identifying a universe of differentiated risks, but you have to weight them in a way where you maximize your opportunity for diversification. We're gonna, later on, we're going to um, address what what that, um, being able to do that, what the the portfolio impact in terms of expected returns uh, will have on it. And, and just going all the way to the futures, the 42 futures markets, equal weighted 42 futures markets at 5.4, a well-diversified maximum diversification bet weight uh, approaches 13.2, right? So massive improvement by thoughtful portfolio construction. So just to, that was, that was good. And just to sort of segue, and again, I don't know why I can't uh, share my screen, but, but Rodrigo, maybe you could, you could share figure one in the new paper because it just dovetails so perfectly with that, uh, with that chart, just talking about the diversification premium that you can generate from uh, investment universes with more independent bets, right? Yeah, um, sharing it now. Just to prime people for, for what they're going to see, we just said, let's assume we've got random assets. Um, so we're just going to create random time series. And um, so to the far left, we're going to create three random time series. And uh, we're going to rebalance back to equal weight uh, for those. So just think about them as um, as markets, right? But instead of actually having real returns, we just created random returns. Um, so you put those three markets together. They're uncorrelated by definition. You rebalance back to their target weight. And then you can, you can set a target compound return on average across the three markets. And as you increase the the drift in the markets, your rebalancing premium also goes up a little bit, right? So just at the far left, you can see for for three uncorrelated random markets with zero, where all the markets have zero returns, even though the markets on average themselves produce zero returns, the portfolio delivers a, a compound return of 0.8% because of the the fact that you're rebalancing, so you're selling losers, buying winners uh, every time you rebalance, and that rebalance effect creates a 0.8% compound return over uh, over time. If you if you go all the way to the other end of the chart, and you'll recall, right, the futures universe had 13 uh, effective bets. So here you've got 13 effective bets, again, 13 uncorrelated markets. Even if all those markets have a zero return, you're still generating 2.2% a year in rebalancing premium. If they happen to have 3% on average compound returns, now you're generating 2.5% per year in rebalancing premium. And God forbid they all have 6% returns. Now you're into the 3% um, per year. So, I mean, it's astonishing what you can generate by just having a, uh, a group of diversified markets and making the effort to find the most diversified 
way of constructing a portfolio of those markets to maximize the number of bets. And, and just to put things into perspective, um, and I may be wrong here, but when you look at traditional long-only factor investing versus the underlying S&P or whatever the underlying benchmark is, what type of excess return do we see from having those tilts? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's a really good question, actually. And I, I meant to go there. I'm glad you reminded me. But so the the global equity risk premium since 1900 is about 5% a year. Yeah. That's the global equity risk premium. To earn that premium, you need to suffer a volatility of about, depending whether you measure it monthly or daily, somewhere between 16% a year and 20% a year in annualized volatility. Okay? All of these returns in this plot are what you get at 10% volatility. So if you get 5%, I'm just going to keep the math simple. If you get 5% at 20% volatility, it means you get 2.5% at 10% volatility. What I'm showing you here is you get the same premium just from rebalancing as you get from the equity re, uh, risk premium when you scale it to the same the same volatility. That's how powerful this effect is when you apply it across such a diverse basket of markets. And, and what I what I also want to emphasize is that traditional equity selection type of factor investing, the excess return above the S and P five hundred tends to be. One, two percent, three percent in back testing without transaction costs and the like. Um, this is this competes with that without getting fancy, right? This is this is a simple matter of the benefit of the rebalancing risk, that excess juicy return that you can get um, without taking excess risk. So that's a really good point because. What it also says, if you sort of flip it around, it sort of says, this is the opportunity cost from from concentrating, right? This is what you're giving up in order to express active views. In other other words, to take a a confident stand that one market is going to substantially outperform another market. If you you create concentrated portfolios that lean heavily into certain markets, then you are by definition giving up the opportunity of diversity and this diversification premium. So there's a trade-off based on your level of confidence that is, you know, if you're, you've got to be really, really confident to to want to give up this, what is essentially a free premium that you get just from diversity. That's right. That's a great point. That is a, like, it is the point because what is that threshold, Right. If you want to concentrate, what do you actually have to have a level of confidence of achieving and executing on? What VIG, what, what excess return do you need in order to be able to say, I don't need that basic stuff. I want to do this advanced stuff that's going to give me that much more benefit. It's a big leap to make. right? Because one, one is about, again, risk parity going back to the concept is it's all about preparation. You don't have to make a prediction of which asset class is going to work in the future. All, the only assumptions you need to make is that these asset classes will continue to have idiosyncratic realities based on their underlying fundamental features, right? And we all need to get behind that. Or some, some may and some, some may not, but I think we can make a strong argument as to why gold will continue to be different than for tips and so on. That's the assumption you need to make. After that, you don't need to predict. You just get that, right? And that's, that's an exactly. everything else requires you to have a little bit of, of a, a prediction emphasis and prediction confidence. Exactly. And the same goes to the other, in the other direction, right? Like when you emphasize one market, 
it's the same as de-emphasizing other markets. And so we hear all the time about people that that don't like risk parity because of the, and Mike addressed this from a risk-weighted standpoint, but people, a lot of people don't get that. What, what they see is a concentrated allocation to bonds. And so when you're concentrating, when, when you're, when you're saying, I don't want to own bonds, what you're doing is you're eliminating the opportunity for diversity, right? You're eliminating a variety of independent bets. And so that is a, that's a strong statement. You're saying, I want to be concentrated in all of the other things that, it, that instead of holding some bonds, right? And, and it's, I think, it, tying together what Mike said about the fact that if you look at a portfolio in terms of its capital weights, you can't really get a good sense of the diversity of the portfolio. I mean, if you know that bonds are substantially less volatile than stocks, you may be, and you understand the dynamics of of uh, of risk contributions, you might be able to sort of intuit it. But once you go past two assets or three assets, it gets essentially impossible. You're trying to visualize a thirteen or sixty dimensional space. So, like, there's just there's no way to do it, no way to intuit it. So. You sort of have to, to trust the math that that you're going to get diversity by not aggressively saying I want I really don't want to own any of these, or I really only want to own this. Right? I only want to own equities. Is the same statement as I don't want to own any bonds. Right? Or and gold. so it's a very strong position to take with a or potentially coin. large opportunity cost. Well, think about it. I- I, I always use the example of the German bonds, right? This this belief right now that you're not going to get any yield from treasuries whatsoever. It's a why have it? As we speak with advisors, they're reducing their treasury exposures or eliminating them altogether because they see that the only place that they're going to be able to provide value to their clients in terms of meeting that 4% threshold in retirement is through the best performing market, regardless of the risk you're going to take. But what if they're right? Let's assume that they are right. And over the next 10 years, equities do well. But it takes eight years for that to manifest because for some reason the gov- central governments do you know, continue to push yields down. We go from uh, one uh, percentage point yield in the treasury to negative three, and that takes eight years. And then it all unravels and you have this massive equity recovery where you make that 4% annualized return. Well, you just gave up eight years of rebalancing premium in order for your for your view to be correct, right? That's that's a lot to give up. There's there's an extension there, Rodrigo. That um, keeping in mind diversification, uh, risk management are all about managing the arithmetic stream of return or arithmetic stream of return, and and helping it approach the geometric rate of return to smooth that. And Very now we're we're. We're at a point where baby boomers are retiring, and most assets that are um, that are being put to work are actually flowing cash. They're not receiving income; they're giving income. And what you articulated there, Rodrigo, is even more detrimental to a portfolio that's in decumulation. Very, very have good this very, very high level of volatility in its annualized returns. And that accentuates, um, it's, it's actually the, the inverse of dollar cost averaging of putting money into volatile assets and you get an excess return. Well, when you're taking money out of volatile assets, you actually get a lower return. That's that difference in the geometric and ath- arithmetic calculation that is incredibly important. It is the, it is the, 
the actual quintessential center point of diversification is a way to try and lower that that uh, difference. And then the rebalancing side of it is is it, it, it's so powerful when you can think about sourcing those different betas. Let's not talk about adding value yet in an alpha sense. Let's not even go there, right? Let's mm-hmm. we got the risk free rate that's zero. Um, now we've got to get some risk premiums from some betas. Well, that in of itself, uh, just as the paper shows, is a very thoughtful process that that can be implemented to source those different. Where are we going to find them? How might we how might we incorporate them? And then, of course, you're going to have tracking error. Yes, there's going to be tracking error. Yes, you, this is going to take discipline. There, you know, they say diversification is a free lunch. I kind of think people pay. <laughs> they pay, they pay for that free lunch. It, it, it's not free if you're if if you're concerned with tracking error instead of downside deviation. Well, that's a good or, question or, on the free know, lunch of things, right? Because this is what we've always said: diversification is free lunch. Rebalancing is a, the benefit. That, that's where you get your free lunch. We were kind of discussing this uh, the other day, Adam. But every way we think about capital markets, we talk about the what what is who's the the willing loser on the other side, right? What is somebody giving up in order to get something else? In the case of of this premium, what model can we uh, attach to it? Uh, who's giving up something in order for the rest of us to capture that three percent premium? In a you know, moderately performing, well-diversified portfolio. Yeah. So this is where, um, you know, and, and I, I want to say hi to the people that are here, by the way, and and uh, especially uh, Brian, how you doing? Um, but also Matt, Breaking the Mark, um, has been really inspirational in this regard. And, and also Taylor Pearson and, and Jason Buck from Mutiny um, shared some really great content. And one of the, one of the, uh, pieces that they shared was this was this video maybe actually you could drop that in the chat uh rodrigo that sure, farmer yeah. video in the chat which um which is just incredible because what it demonstrates is that when two parties rebalance against one another or you know and extrapolate it out to multiple parties or or you know all investors when they rebalance against one another it just it actually grows the total pie at a faster rate and a more stable rate than not rebalancing. And it makes everybody's wealth more resilient um, over the long run. So um, it's it's one of these situations where no one has to lose in order for everyone to win, um, which, is, which is a truly remarkable and astonishing uh, recognition, right? I mean, how often in markets do you get to participate in effect where in an effect where if everyone else were to participate in it everyone would else would do better you know right. usually you need to uh to to take a premium you know it's it's sharps arithmetic right if you're taking a dollar in excess returns in the market someone else must be losing it here's a situation where that's not true um which is which well, is pretty in, in fact i guess the long term single asset holders pay Right, the law. If you're a single asset holder, you experience uh, the sharp ratio of that asset. You don't. Yeah. You don't transport liquidity to other assets when when you're when you have excess liquidity in your particular domain to capture the excess return that comes from a an asset that's going through a liquidity squeeze. You don't get that. You just stay in your one lane. And you. And why? Why that. is an asset going through a liquidity squeeze? It's because a certain class of investor is 
is having a bad time, right? Like, let's face it, like people are four sellers. So something is having a liquidity squeeze and, and the people who are rebalancing are stepping in and and offering a helping hand during that time. And, you know, that situation will reverse eventually, right? And so that is that is where you generate this long-term, mutually beneficial, mutually reinforcing type of dynamic. Precisely. Precisely. Well, mutually, it's like the it's like the value investor. He doesn't invest today because he foresees prices being lower in the future. The rebalancer is similar. He's looking at some set of assets that he's balanced, and he's looking for that opportunity for something to happen to cause him to say, "Oh, here's an opportunity to provide the liquidity I have in these four asset buckets to this other bucket that's going through this period of time." It's kind of like this this transportability of liquidity that is provided to that, which attenuates the downside in that other asset and attenuates the upside in the asset that needs to be sold. And this yin and yang provides uh, less. So, so when we think about this in, in the way the market's headed uh, with the you know sort of um, uh, popularity of market cap, the popularity of the US, the 10 stocks in the US that are dominating the market cap and the S&P 500, when you think about that, you're, you have a setup here where, you know, certainly we have high valuations, we have very low interest rates, the risks are higher, the possibility of correlation spikes is higher. Um, all of these things are higher and maybe they're higher because there is more concentration in these assets. But this is a time to be thinking a little bit ahead. Where's the puck going? Not where's it been? Each decade seems to have its own sort of per- persona. And if we think of, you know, the 90s were quite different than the knots. The knots were quite different than the 10s. Uh, here we are at the beginning of the 20s. Now, it doesn't obviously work out. Each decade is unique to the, to the year. But we go through these regime shifts. And so if you, certainly if you think you can predict them, you know, that's the alpha. That's that excess return. We did cover that in one of the It's totally fine. You, you just, you know what the hurdle is now, right? It's very high. Yeah. So I wonder if we could shift gears a little bit. We've certainly beat this diversification horse to death. I'd, I'd like to know, Adam, you were sort of deep into this. What were the things that surprised you? What were some of the things that, you know, I know you and I talked about a few things where I'm like, oh, that made me go, hmm. But for you, what were, what were some of the things that sort of, this is a little bit different or this is better than I thought? What, what were the key sort of- I was of- surprised by the the number of, the amount of diversity among the commodity markets. I mean- if you look at the um, the risk allocation, the average risk allocation within the sort of most diversified risk parity portfolios, you get a lot more allocation to commodities than y- you would expect. You know, you think about a more traditional uh, global risk parity where you target equal risk to an equity cluster, a bond cluster, and a, and a commodity cluster, um, but the commodity cluster is typically weighted by by production, or you know, you can imagine the, the Goldman Sachs. Uh, index weights by by the product the dollar value of production of these of these commodities that sort of thing or the Reuters index equal weights the commodities right but you're not getting the maximum amount of diversity like just going back to um, Rodrigo's chart um, that he was showing earlier and and I may get the the numbers not exactly right but I think you get sort of four or five bets from equally weighting all of the futures markets but you get thirteen bets from maximizing the diversification using an, a, an appropriate optimization, right? And so the uh, the ability to allocate to a commodity, cl- to the commodity cluster 
in a way that is aware of and maximizes the diversity in that cluster, and then um, acknowledging the, the the optimal diversity of all of those different commodity clusters against the different financials, against the different equity markets, and against the different bond markets. When you put them all in together, I was I was astonished at how large the the premium was. You know, I, I went into it thinking, well, a a, a three asset permanent portfolio. Um, I'd seen some papers that shows that that the rebalancing premium was on the order of about one percent for yep. for them, um, and I validated that in the paper. Um, but a three or three and a half percent rebalancing premium at a ten percent vol of the portfolio, I was astonished at the magnitude of that. Um, and, and so it just made me rethink the value of commodities in the portfolio. Certainly, they serve a, a role. As an inflation hedge, and and absolutely, I mean that is originally why we wanted to have the 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 assets in the portfolio in the first place. But you, there's this sort of niggling concern that there'll be a bit of a drag to returns. Turns out, because of their diversity, when you rebalance them, there is a material premium in commodities just from the from rebalancing among just all the by, different from bets. having them there. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. That was that was shocking to me as well. But it does. It makes absolute sense, right? And and this is the problem, though. I think from the perspective of these, of uh, the rebalancing premium, what you need to to make sure you have as, as your value system is the ability to stick to a, an asset class or a series of asset classes that may go in decade long periods of downward drift, but volatile, right? You have to because. As long as they're different and they're moving in different ways, you're getting that rebalancing premium, number one. Number two, you never know when they're going to start having a massive 10-year-long recovery, like we saw from you know treasuries from 1941 to 1981, followed by some of the best-performing, one of the best-performing, if not the best-performing asset class of following 20, 30 years, right? It's, it's the moment you, that you sign up for this, you, you give up your willingness to want to protect. You have to. You have to like f- believe in the process of rebalancing, and and constantly being the farmer harvesting that rebalancing premium. And we wrote a piece a uh, bunch of years ago called the uh, Shannon's Demon, that showed just that two asset classes that uh, both lose money, but are non-correlated and have uh, X amount of volatility create a positive equity line. And I'm actually putting the link in right now in the chat. I think that that speaks to the point of why why have any gold in there? Why have any commodities? Uh, why have any treasuries right now? They're low. It should be 100% equities. Okay, here's here's why. But it's tough. Again, it's, Agreed, just, it's yeah. a really tough thing to do. Mike, what what I remember we had a conversation, but you had a couple of of um, you sort of came at it from an acute angle. And I, uh, what were some of the things that you had sort of identified as particularly curious? Well, we, we showed some some of the the the, the actual uh, portfolio constructions that actually provided a negative rebalancing. And you and I were sort of talking about. I was going to suggest that we that. show Figure Six actually to sort yeah. of illustrate that. I, I agree that was a that was another one that really because I know that that um, for example uh, the hierarchical risk parity method has got, gotten a lot of attention. I apologize for for the windiness. I thought I'd try to be outside today, but it uh, is more windy than usual. Um, but yeah, the, the hierarchical risk parity gets a lot of attention, uh, and it does have some some interesting properties. Uh, but one of the things uh, that we observe is that because the traditional formulation of hierarchical risk parity uh, inverse variance weights, 
the the final clusters, and it doesn't quite work like this, but it's effectively like this. The final weighting between the clusters is inverse variance weights, and bonds have such so much lower volatility than the other assets in the portfolio. It ends up just really massively um, emphasizing bonds, and you know it's it's it, just scroll down a little bit. Figure six. Scroll up a little bit. Sorry. Yeah, figure six really kind of. Well, yeah. down, I guess. HRP in, bar, in South know, America, it's top. down then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> South America goes as low. No, 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 no. Right. no. Right oh, yeah, yeah. That's, the right. that's the right yeah. one. Use that one. Yeah, yeah exactly. This, yeah. Is the one. this is the one that summarizes it best. Otherwise, you'll have pages and pages on this thing. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. So so, so this, all I did here is I, I bootstrapped the returns to all of the different markets. Um, so, so randomly grab, um, you know, 30 years of returns with replacement. And then run all of the different optimizations and observe the rebalancing premium, right? And then do that 10,000 times. And that's the distribution that we observe, the distribution of rebalancing premium. So you can see that the max diversification, the maximally diversified risk parity portfolio consistently generates a a higher premium than the other methods. In contrast, the hierarchical risk premium, sorry, the hierarchical risk parity um, method consistently generates a zero premium. And it's, it's because of the extreme concentration in fixed income. Now, I mean, if you if you sort of scroll up, I actually think we, we should go up to figure four because it does show that, that there you go, HRP VAR, no, 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 you passed it. There it is, yeah. It does show that the, the performance of the um, HRP VAR portfolio is uh, over the long-term, long-term average portfolio return compounds at around 10%. It's competitive. But it's competitive because bonds did so well in sample, right? It emphasized bonds, and bonds happened to be the highest sharp asset class, right? So, so it delivered reasonable returns through concentration. But that same concentration makes it extremely vulnerable, and especially right now, right? Whereas the the, the max div style portfolios um, had a much smaller allocation t- to fixed income on the order of about 25% of risk on average and about the same in equities. And over 50% of the risk was allocated to commodities because there's so many diverse bets within commodities. So you have a situation where these maximally diversified portfolios generate the returns without such a heavy reliance on a high equity risk premium going forward or a high fixed income risk premium going forward, which I I think makes them even more attractive. How far back did you use? Uh, did you test Let's go it? back to 1985. Right. So I, it would have been a whole different story if you would have been able to, to get enough. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, if you'd gone back, back and, and run years, this in right? the 70s, then the HRP VAR would have been absolutely demolished. Yeah. Like just from a first principles perspective, the idea of risk parity is over long, very, very long, like 100 years, you're going to get similar sharp ratios. But even over 30, 40 year periods, you will have certain asset classes outperform. And in this case, it happens to be, it happens to be the one that has a lower volatility that gave the best result, right? And exactly. of course you're gonna get that. Exactly. Um, you just talk about forward this to the- often too, Rod, the, you know, the, the last number of years, well, 1982 uh, to 2000, people would talk about, you know, oh, bonds did this and you had, you know, 18% rates of return. You also had an allocation to gold. Gold went from two thousand dollars to two hundred dollars, and you had you carried that risk weighted allocation to gold and commodities. Uh, oil bottomed at nine dollars. This happened ninety nine in two thousand. Those were part of the risk parity portfolio during that whole period of time. 
and as you say, and and you, we see this quantitatively. The gold, um, when you, when you when you are emphasizing diversification, gold does stand on its own and apart from um, the broad commodity cluster, right? Um, so so many uh, commercial risk parity implementations they sort of bucket commodities together because they don't really right. know what to do with them, you right. know. Um, so they bucket them all together, like I say, like the Goldman Sachs index or equal weight them or some or, or maybe inverse variance weight them or something. Um, or inverse fall weight them, um, but it doesn't account for the diversity of of uh, clusters in there. You know, if you look at the energy cluster, a lot of the energies. If you look at WTI crude versus Brent crude and and RBOB and like these all ha- are very highly correlated. You know, like they're not. You can't allocate within the energy cluster and get the same diversity that you can get by allocating between the different clusters, right? And so having an awareness of that, of, of the broader um, relationship context really allows you to emphasize and, and, and um, far more bets emerge. You know, that, that's, a, that's a great point to dig into because I think, you know, as, as I think about this from the standpoint of the different sources of return that we have and that we have to prioritize the sourcing and finding of these different returns and how do we do that? And that hierarchical process, maybe you can go into a little bit of that of how that actually gets done in order to make sure that you can source these betas and, and when they're, you know, oh, they're acting together, they will they will change the bucket that they might be in. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I sorry, I, we got a question on that from Rahul. So so thanks for that question, Rahul. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the way that it's typically done is that you, because correlations and, and covariances change through time, you're observing the covariances locally because typically what we've observed most recently ends up being uh, the best estimate of what we should expect in the recent future. So if you're rebalancing monthly or or even quarterly, you know, typically these regimes last for a little while. And so you want to have you want to be observing the the covariances over the past, you know, if you want a, a relatively fast moving model uh, over the last uh, 60 days, or you can use some sort of exponentially weighted covariance estimation. Um, but even if you're estimating over rolling windows, if you've got monthly data, um, we've just really done some analysis using very longer monthly data um, and rolling over a 36 month horizon, you know, even that can be very effective, right? Um, and some combination can be even more effective because you get different mean reverting and running dynamics at different um, time horizons. Actually, which reminds me of uh, of another point that I, I wanted to make, which is, um, what do you think about managed futures? So managed futures allocates uh, across all these diverse markets, right? Clearly they're allocating across all these financials, these bonds and, and equity markets and all these commodities. Um, typically it is, in, historically for, for most managed futures programs, they like to keep it simple, right? Every, you talk to a managed futures manager, CTA, they hate covariances. They don't want to talk about correlations. Correlations are unstable, blah, 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 right? Um, but they give up a lot from that, right? If you if you acknowledge that there's that yes, covariances are unstable, therefore you need to use shrinkage and you need to use robust uh, estimation methods. You can still generate an enormous number of bets out of sample. And we we show a chart of the of the true out of sample number of bets that you can that you can um, generate from this uh, diverse futures portfolio. But if you think about a managed futures manager, it actually if you recognize the benefit. Of having all of these these bets in the portfolio, then you want to actually make it more difficult to not have a market in the portfolio on, 
right? Like if, if all the markets were perfectly correlated, then there's no benefit to having more markets on at the moment, right? But, but if you're acknowledging the diversity in the investment universe, then you want to make it harder for like, for example, a, a market may have a, a slight negative expected return based on your trend model. But if it's sufficiently uncorrelated with the balance of the portfolio, it may still generate a higher, uh, create a portfolio higher with a higher sharp ratio, ratio and and the continue to, to harvest this rebalancing missed. premium. The gestalt is what's missed when it comes to CTAs, right? Because a lot of CTAs come from the old school chartists, right? They're looking at and asset classes and asset classes. And it's not like uh, um, uh, momentum where you're you're trying to do you know, rank best to worst, you're actually, every single asset class is its own thing. And you're either above trend or below trend, you're going long or you're going short. So what happens in a situation where the only thing above the trend is 100%, like a bunch of equities and everything else is kind of hovering in your equity line and you're not neither short nor long. Well, you have all of your, all of your risk there and you have no risk in anything else, right? That is a highly concentrated single bet. You're not, you don't have 10 different equity markets you're betting. You have one bet on growth. And if you, so if you do have anything that's balancing it off and you take into account the correlation between those two, what ends up happening is you, 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 if you care, if you're a CTA that cares about balance as well as that direction, you give your chance, yourself an opportunity to increase the sharp ratio in spite of that negative returning asset class that you think may not be there. And we've shown, we, we've done this analysis on trend, how by doing this, by thinking about risk parity plus trend, just by thinking about the, the balance side, you can increase sharp ratio by as much as 50%. Oh, totally. I mean, it's just amazing. The um, And we can give this away now because yeah. we, we don't, we wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. But <laughs> but be, but this this method where you can just imagine a simple trend system whether it's a moving average system or a time series momentum system or whatever and and you've got a, you've got a set of markets and based on your trend signal they're either you're either you either want to be long or short or maybe neutral maybe maybe the so the signal is either a 1 a 0 or a negative 1 you've got many markets and all of them have a signal of 1 a 0 or a negative 1 well instead of just inverse inverse vol weighting them so the ones that are on get inverse vol weighted or whatever inverse atr or some other uh, heuristic. Um, the ones that get are on get get one vol unit. The ones that are 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 short get one negative vol unit. The ones that are zero get zero vol units. Instead of that, instead of you, you plug those return estimates into a robust Mac Sharp optimization, and now you have a trend portfolio that is aware of the trade off between the desire to maximize the exposure to trend and the benefit of diversification right and yeah. and as you say and we've sort of we've circled the drain on this without sort of going into a white paper on it or whatever um in several research pieces but as you say using the same simple trend signals regardless of what they are you get about a 40 50 percent boost to the risk adjusted performance of of your models by using this uh diversification aware approach rather than using a more naive approach that um, you know abhors divert, uh, correlations. Yeah, where it's hundred percent about prediction and diversification just is, is a secondary afterthought. You know, it just happens to you. I mean, the way original trend managers would just 
allocate whatever. Oh, that one's long. I like that one. I'm going to give it more conviction weighting. I think more modern CTAs do inverse vol, I think. Right. But there's, there's that step. And that some of them do, step. some of them do ERC weighting and there's been some good papers on that. And ERC weighting improves it over just inverse ball um, or inverse ATR. And like this, you, you get closer, but everybody avoids a true mean variance optimization, right? Because they've been fed this line about error maximization. And I mean, which is, which Damn itself is total nonsense. Um, Damn you, Carver. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. But Carver, Carver gets it right. Like I know, you I can, know if you, if you use straight mean variance optimization in a uh, with a lot of assets where many of the assets are very highly correlated, you can you can get overly concentrated, right? But I mean, Mark um, uh, Kritzman, right, has written some great articles. Yes, you get two. You're allocating between two markets that are highly correlated. A very small change in mean might cause you to go 100% in asset A, zero in asset B, and another very small change in mean might cause you to go zero asset A and 100% in asset B. But the reality is, if the change in mean is very small, then the actual mean variance expectancy of the portfolio is exactly the same, whether you own 100% asset A or 100 asset B, right? Yeah. Optimally, you don't 50% in A and 50% in B because there's idiosyncratic risk that mm -hmm. you're not capturing in the optimization, right? And that's what a robust optimization will deliver, right? So you can use you can do that using regularization, using uh, bootstrapping. There's a variety of different ways to to achieve that outcome. Make sure that 50-50 like approach. Exactly. But, but this is it. It's it's they're right. I mean, th nobody's saying you're not wrong, and that small changes can lead to drastic shifts in allocations. But from a risk parity lens perspective, those allocations are identical. Well, you're yeah, either from a 100 in NASDAQ and 100 in S&P, right? It doesn't really matter if you're one or the other. Like you said, there's idiosyncratic risk. You want to have both. But if you kind of play that out and let it all and assume no transaction costs, then it's kind of it ends up being the same portfolio in spite of those drastic changes in allocations. Well, even with transaction products. costs, it's the same because sure. you've either got to trade two units of one or 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 one units of two. Right. Right. So it's it's the same. Um, so you know, I, I think that's that's missed so so often, and it's just another uh, example of how people miss this the opportunity cost of diversification. So the loathing of mean variance optimization is just astounding to me. And it, and it makes a lot of sense because I think what, one of the first paper we wrote back in 2012 together talked about Geigo, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So I think the industry has used mean variance optimization, assuming long-term volatility expectations of, of equities and bonds, long-term correlation of equities and bonds. And if you are just using those and applying mean variance optimization and doing whatever your capital market expectations based on what they've done over the last hundred years, then yeah, you're probably going to hate mean variance optimization, right? But it just got comes such a long way, and that remnant of um, you know people leaving wirehouses and saying I'm never going to use that again, it just you can't you can't breed it out of them. They don't they don't understand the. The benefit it, it it might be a similar situation with rebalancing. What is rebalancing? When you talk about rebalancing, for most people, what is it? It's either calendar based or threshold based, and it's it's though it's based on those two dynamics on the most popular asset classes called sixty forty. Um, you've seen this constant degradation of any exposure outside of that, and so if you, if you t I think that that the vast majority of people would would probably pass on the paper. Just, breeze over it because they're thinking of it in a very simple dynamic and not understanding 
the true um, implications of, well, first you've got to find and source the different return streams that are firing at different times and, and understand that that's not a stationary thing, that those things do evolve and move and you have to have some mechanism in order to track that, in order to monitor that and adjust to that. Um, I forget which figure, yeah, figure four, right? In, in, the, in the rebalancing paper shows how the number of, you know, out of sample independent bets changes Right, they do cluster in response to changes in, in the covariances. And, yeah, yeah. And, and and which is a function of the regime shifts that is occurring, and yeah. so so you you do need to pay attention to that. Now, you know, something like a permanent portfolio goes a long way. It's super simple, but it doesn't quite it doesn't quite maximize the opportunity, um, and and so I think that's that's something that from a rebalancing perspective, you know. Well, here's an interesting here's an interesting point, Mike. Right, so um, I think we know a lot of people who run a permanent portfolio um, individually because mm-hmm. they're like, well, I don't want to pay fees. Yep. And I can this is super simple. I can run it myself. I don't need to pay any fees. Right. Yep. Um, well, the rebalancing premium on the permanent portfolio is one percent a year. The rebalancing premium on the maximum diversified risk parity portfolio is three percent a year. Yeah. Which to me says you can pay two percent in fees. And be neutral, and yeah. most of the risk parity strategies that that I see commercially offered, you don't pay you don't pay two percent fees, and yeah. we cert- also we most people don't, don't allocate to portfolio. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that rebalancing premium is a lot larger; it's more close to like two and a half percent a year. So <laughs> let's let's. I want to I want to just uh, touch upon one thing you said, Mike, um, which is that um, you know there's this idea that the markets move and they evolve. You know we've touched. We've talked a lot about um, the market dynamics leading to alpha going away with, when there's too much money going into a methodology, you know, overcrowding and the like, right? So we've written a ton on that. It's one of the reasons why we do, we try to avoid the crowd through our machine learning process, but taking it to this basic rebalancing that earlier on we said, well, it's there, it's always going to be there. It's a free lunch. It's just the dynamics. What type of overcrowding can exist here? And and how can we how how can overcrowding possibly minimize or reduce the rebalancing premium in the future? Everybody listens to our podcast. Everybody buys into risk parity. They like what we're doing. Slight differences. What happens? I would, think, I would think you're seeing that right now. You're seeing ten stocks dominate the returns of global equity markets everywhere. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity. But we've for- seen massive. We've seen massive divergence in correlations between those 10 stocks and bonds uh, in the worst of it, right? And gold is now significantly lower correlated. So on, from an asset yeah. class level, I take your argument because I've, that, I've had we, this right? like with, incentive to if me before. Everybody, if everybody rebalances, then the aggregate wealth of everybody increases. Yeah. And you also create a portfolio that is much more, much less ergodic. In other words, you're much less vulnerable to a major catastrophic outcome in a single asset class, right? Which, I mean- yeah, so everybody, everybody, uh, uh, less people take concentrated risks that leads them at the margins in panic to take aggressive action that leads to increased or decreased liquidity, which leads to lower volatility of, of single asset classes, and that lower volatility leads to a lower rebalancing premium. Well, I think Am I you're. Anything wrong? You're, I think you're. You're sure. assuming that everybody is a, like that, that. That there's this aggregate amount of capital that sits in the market and none ever leaves and none ever goes in. Like there's always going to be investors that are flowing funds into the markets and flowing funds out of the market that are going to 
they're going to buy and sell, you know, like, and they're going to buy and sell at different times for different reasons. And, well, what, and uh, totally that, that's, that's likely the outcome, risk. For, but what yeah. is, what if everybody's buying the risk parity maximum diversified? Well, I, I agree. So let, let's, let's, let's observe. Do you think that that's happening? No, <laughs> we know I, the, the global, listen, I got to play devil's advocate. For, no, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great advocacy for the devil. <laughs> Let's look at the global market portfolio, right? So, so the true passive equity portfolio, just let's say equity. Let's let's ignore all the other asset classes that would be sort of an acqui weighted benchmark to equities, and that everybody in the world should own that. In fact, everybody in the world collectively does own that. That's how the that the market cap manifests. But they all own it from a significant home country bias, all of them, and so. I don't see. Yeah, you would need to eliminate home country bias, right? right? You would need to eliminate the need to feel like you can predict. You would need oh, yeah. to eliminate the industry as a whole, believing that they can predict the future. Like it's just there's so many hurdles for this to go. In. The only, you know what the, my biggest my biggest one is where I think there as a proving who's seen this happen is capital controls, right? Where so- Look, we saw it in gold. Gold was at a certain level. There was there was zero volatility for gold in its in the majority of its modern history, mm-hmm. and so all that rebalancing premium that we got from gold, it doesn't exist. Zero, in that period, hold right? on a second. There's a zero observed gold. The black market for gold was very different. So, right, but as long as you can transact, transact to portfolio, yeah. that's the key. As long as right, you can transact, right, one right. of the key tenets of prosperity as well is that you need to be able to be liquid. You need to invest in liquid stuff, right? It doesn't work for for VC. And mind, like you for, get a rebalancing premium by rebalancing between stocks and cash. Cash has no volatility, but rebalancing between stocks and cash produces a rebalancing premium. Sure. And so, if you've got several markets that don't trade, but that are sufficiently liquid that you can get in and out of them, and you, you're able to trade other volatile markets, you're still able to generate. A material rebalancing premium. Yeah, I think I think there will always be opportunities. What I'm discussing is the reduction of what we've seen in 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 situ by a despotic series of leaders having capital controls on commodities, having capital controls on gold, having capital controls. I mean, one might say that we have some very big fears of capital controls and yield control in the treasury market, right? So. Those are the things I think when you look at the overcrowding discussions we've been having over the last yeah. few weeks, I mean, nobody's immune to it. I just think this, this process is the most immune to it. This is, what's, this is what always, it always devolves to, but, 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 you know, it has these flaws without recognizing that all of the other potential ways that you can invest have much, much more hair. Oh yeah. Right. So I know that we all want to be intellectually honest and whatever. And I think that, that, that that's important. And we try to go into, we try to, to, to discuss things from all different angles, but, but reductio ad absurdum is also, I don't know how helpful it is because, you know, people are resistant to new ideas in the first place. And, they want to keep doing what they're doing. They want to keep doing what their friends are doing and they don't need any more. And they're going to see the flaws in, in something new with much br- brighter colors, with greater, more vividly and with much louder noises than they see the flaws in what they're currently doing and what they're they're currently being advised to do. And so, you know, I, I agree that there are some potentially non-zero probability uh future trajectories that could result in some of these weird um, situations. But I would argue that this 
global risk parity portfolio is still the best position, even though we may compromise some of the- So the one that has a high structural barrier to arbitrage. Yeah. And, and again, I, th- I think what you, what you outline is a point that is very important too, Rodrigo, is that the markets are reflexive and that if everyone does adopt this particular protocol, then that has an effect on the markets. As Adam says, the study of physics doesn't change physics, but in fact it does. <laughs> if you is, well, is light a wave or a particle, well, if it's observed, it changes. It's a very interesting thing, but in most domains- It doesn't science, change so much as it just expresses a state. Exactly. Or and look, there, somebody that, is going to read that white paper. The of things doesn't change things as much but that's what we're here for. We're not espousing this as being, this is what you should do forever. I think it's a very, very solid protocol that one has to look very carefully at if we think about, okay, what are the sources of return that we're going to have? We have the risk-free rate. We have risk premia from from betas, not just the equity risk premium beta, not just just the value factor premia. Um, Right. And then you've got the opportunity for skill. Well, let's cover off the first two really well. You know, like risk-free is going to be zero. Okay. What about what about the potential for a diverse basket of risk premia betas? What about the opportunity to rebalance those appropriately? Then let's talk about more. And I, I would say therein lies some skill in that for sure and lies some discipline and lies the ability to tolerate tracking error. So there's going to be a price paid for those investors who take this uh, particular path. But, you know, I think given, given what the paper talks about, these are substantial excess returns. Like these are returns that are on the order of risk premium excess returns. And, 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 look, and they reduce risk at the same time. And look, one thing that we haven't talked about uh, that comes hand in hand with risk parity is that risk parity, because it's so diversified, could lead to a very low vol portfolio. And so you have the benefit of, of using mm-hmm. Nobel Prize winning concepts from Sharp of uh, using leverage in order to increase your total return. So does you, we talked about a 10% volatility risk parity portfolio that has a sharp uh, has an excess return of 3% if done right. What happens if you lead, have, run a 20 vol product because you're used to having 20% volatility as a international 100% equity port, uh, investor and you can handle that volatility and that drawdown? Well, all of a sudden you increase, maybe not double because you have to pay for leverage, but you, you've all of a sudden increased your rebalancing premium quite a bit. With, well, keep in mind, we, 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 our study was on futures, so increasing leverage is um, yeah exactly no yeah there's no exactly well i think from a from a you know, nominal notional perspective from the average investor they might perceive it that way but I'm with you no but the point is the point is that you can you don't have you want more return i want more return so i have to the default is i have to be predictable i have to use prediction mm-hmm. what i'm saying is that we'll hold up a second before you go there first assess what your maximum risk that you can willing to take see what the rebalancing premium offers you at that level and then say, I need more. Great. Are you ready to go down the machine learning rabbit hole, right? Or you know some of the stuff that we do. But it's it's there's there's even more of a hurdle. Remember going back to the original point of if I have a predict if I can concentrate in equities and try to pick better equities. Well, your equities have a ball between fifteen and twenty five average. Okay, so let's let's get that risk parity rebalancing premium up to your ball and recognize that now your hurdle got even higher. 
Anyway. No, yeah, no, very I think true. Matt asked a question. I just want to acknowledge Go ahead. breaking the market. Matt, Matt, um, just focusing the, the, the lens on the fact that uh, so long as we've got a group of investments that are uncorrelated and sufficiently volatile, there will be a, a rebalancing premium. And I think I think that's what we sort of triangulated on uh, with Rodrigo's comments. So um, so 100 percent agree. Yeah. Um, so oh, what is supposed to happen when something changes from liquid to controlled? Uh, yeah, so I mean, if something can no longer be traded, then it no longer represents an, an, an opportunity for an uncorrelated bet. So for sure, but control doesn't necessarily mean that it's not liquid, right? They could just you could just set a price. Right. Um, so you can still have it in your portfolio. You just yeah. don't have the volatility to necessarily rebalance. Yeah, it Hong Kong has pegged its currency against the dollar for for many years. The the, uh, the Swiss Someone, franc pegged for a uh, while yeah, against the euro. But you could still <laughs> you could still buy and sell francs versus euros and and uh, Hong Kong dollars versus U.S. dollars, etc. It's just that. The price doesn't change, and as long as um, you're able to, you've got other volatile assets, and you're and you're rebalancing into and out of the non-volatile assets, you're still able to, to generate a premium. Look, and proxy assets that are not controlled might have even more volatility that's that you right. can harvest from that, right? So th there's always a pressure valve that yeah. needs well, to be I released. Think, I think in this case, when you have something pegged, don't trade the don't trade the pegged item, right? Trade trade the non-pegged item. That's well, no, the point it, is though. I, oh, yeah, I mean, but if you can if you can trade it. Then trade, then using it as an again, right? You can generate a rebalancing premium by rebalancing between cash and a and, and a volatile I asset, see. right? Yep. So you still want to trade it. It's just that it won't generate any volatility. So you may need to trade the rest of your portfolio at a slightly higher exposure to preserve your target volatility right. and preserve that or achieve that rebalancing. I guess premium. what I'm suggesting is what happened with with the the euro and um, Swiss franc was a particularly large event so if both assets were behaving the same because of a peg um the one that can unpeg the smaller of the two that unpegs and has some 20 standard deviation i event, see what you're saying they're 100 percent correlated now so why yeah. are you trading about so why are you yeah, trading yeah, both you. of them yeah so you trade the one that is the more freer trading one of the two but those are those get down uh, sort of deep into decisions that have to be made um in the uh in 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 the trading of of different assets and portfolios and things like that well gents we're on an hour and 10 minutes and i know you've got a swimming meet to get to adam and uh i know rod's got some kid stuff to do what do you think we should shall we wrap it there Let's wrap I it up we, I, I, I think we we covered everything well yeah. we certainly I, did. I also do want to ask everyone out there if you can certainly um like these things subscribe to them on youtube it helps us a lot if you leave a review or you have it in the comment sections it's really great helps us grow um, the opportunity to share things with everybody. It helps us grow the opportunity to have great guests on as well when it's not just the, the three amigos, if you will. And uh, we appreciate all your support. And we'll That's a really week. good point, Mike, because, and I, hopefully, I, I know Matt's on here and, and uh, several others probably listening have, um, were tremendous helps in editing and, and bouncing ideas off uh, for, for, for these papers. And uh, right, true. those contributions are enormously valuable and um, really appreciate all the engagement and sharing, et cetera, of, of all the content and just uh, absolutely just keep it up. The more, the more engagement we get on these shows, then the, um, you know, the more guests we're, we're able to attract more, more easily and more quickly and, and the more interesting the conversations and valuable the conversations get. So good point. Amen. What do we, what do we have next week? Speaking of that, that's a good point. I just want to say that I'm shocked that it's been an hour and 10 minutes and Adam hasn't dropped his favorite line. 
where diversification is indistinguishable from magic. Sufficiently advanced diversification <laughs> is indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. Yeah. Mike and Bastardizing I that constantly veto that, but it keeps on coming out. Had to bring it out. Anyway, yeah. gents, great chat as always. Um, everyone out there. Have Thanks a, to Meb Faber actually for, for canceling this week and giving us the chance to to, to fill the gap, to yeah. riff on this paper. So, oh yeah. Uh, so so Wayne Wayne Himmelstein is with us next week. So oh right, be right. Kind of exciting, which oh, is great. really interesting, right? Because now you have so you have a rebalancing premium across different asset classes, but now let's talk about the idea of the tail. And how does that impact the opportunity for diversification through a portfolio? This is a very, very, I think, uh, complementary discussion to what we talked about mm -hmm. today. So mm -hmm. uh, to truly get a robust portfolio, that's going to be a bit of fun. Absolutely. Agreed. All right, well, thanks, thanks, guys. Have a great weekend, and everyone. Thanks for your listening. Everyone have a great weekend. Yeah, see y'all. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.